Well, friends, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please join me now by turning to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians 14, and this morning we are studying verses 26 to 40. Now, this morning's text is the final one in our sermon series on the Holy Spirit. We started off our series considering the Holy Spirit's work in our experience of conviction of sin, followed by a message, or two messages rather, on the call to walk in the Spirit and the call to be filled with the Spirit. But over the last three weeks, we've studied 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and the first part of chapter 14, which teaches us that God graciously gives spiritual gifts to the church, which are a manifestation of the Spirit's presence in our midst, and that our operation in the spiritual gifts must be grounded in love. But this week, as we conclude the series, we do so with Paul's exhortation that passionate Christianity must maintain orderly practice. Passionate Christianity must maintain orderly practice. So this morning's message is going to be titled, Passionately Ordered Worship. Now, when I was a kid, court TV was just beginning to take root and to take off. And Judge Judy became a household name all over the country, but certainly in our own home. All I can say is what an incredible show. What a blessed childhood we had to have Judge Judy. Now, listen, Judge Judy is like the WWE for me. Even if her show is fake, I don't want to know about that. I like living in a world where Judge Judy has personally invited me to attend her, her, her courtroom sessions through a television show. Now, perhaps if you've seen this show, the most exciting moments in the show are those when she slams the gavel and shouts with her Brooklyn, New York accent, which I won't try to imitate at this point, but shouts, order, order. Or as she oftentimes does, skips that step and tells people to leave the courtroom because they're being too confrontational. Well, in our final section of Scripture that we're studying this morning, you could say that Paul is doing the same thing. There is chaos and confusion throughout this local church at Corinth. So Paul slams the gavel to get our attention and tells us, order. And now that he has our attention, let's hear his instructions as we turn now to what is undoubtedly the best part of this morning's message. And that is the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one 
has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. Well, let's go to the Lord quickly and ask for his help to understand and apply his word. Lord, we love you and we love your word. And we want to confess this morning that we, though we love you and though we love your word, God, we are limited and need your help to understand your word and to apply your word. So please open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. In Christ's name, amen. Well, our first point this morning is order up. Paul starts this section off with the words, what then, brothers? In light of all of his instruction throughout the last two chapters on spiritual gifts, he now grounds his teaching with these words of application. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Now, one thing that I love about his emphasis at this point is on each one bringing something to the meeting. He starts off the application portion of chapter 14 by reminding the church of their responsibility, each one bringing something to the meeting. Now, our culture and our country is dying for churches like this. Because for the last 30 years, or perhaps even longer, many churches have sought to move away from this model of worship and towards a more theatrical one, a seeker-sensitive one, one that is come and behold instead of come and participate. 
Instead of each one has a gift, it has become each one watches others' gifts. But friends, you know this. That model of church is not satisfying and it is certainly not healthy. So what then is satisfying and healthy? A church where every member ministers. Paul knows that God has given, he has just detailed for the church in Corinth and detailed for us that God has given a spiritual gift to every Christian. And his heart's desire is that every Christian use their gift to bless and build a happy and healthy local church. So he says, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Now his point here is not to provide an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts, but instead it's to showcase the posture of how the Christian should prepare themselves to enter the Sunday meeting. How they should prepare themselves to use their gifts to bless the body, to bless and build a happy and healthy local church. So friend, whether that's by singing or teaching or sharing a prophetic word or praying with someone or administering or greeting or any other spiritual gift, whatever spiritual gift that you have, whatever that gift is, it should be on display throughout the Sunday meeting because it should be done to build others up. That's what he says. He says, let all things be done for building up. So friend, in light of Paul's point here, here's a couple of questions for you. Do your Saturday night prayers include asking God to use your gifts on Sunday morning to build up the body? Does your Sunday morning car ride include a prayer asking God to stir up your spiritual gifts so that you might serve the body with fresh effectiveness? Paul is teaching us that the church is not designed to be a spectator spectacle. But instead, it is a moment where every member ministers. And for those in the church who have the gift of tongues, his instructions in verses 27 and 28 are crystal clear. He says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three and each in turn, and let someone interpret. Now, evidently, and this is no surprise to you if you've been here for our series in 1 Corinthians, this must not have been the practice at Corinth during this time. The impression when you're reading this book is that those with the gift of tongues were speaking them out loud throughout the service and all together so that they were indistinguishable and they were not interpreted. But of course, like we learned in chapter 13, most importantly, when this takes place, when this happens, it does not and it cannot serve the body. And Paul's trying to, to make that point clear to the church. When you come together, build one another up. When you come together, build one another up. When you come together, build one another up. 
And if you are speaking out of turn, all together, sort of everybody standing up, speaking in tongues, no one knows what the other person is saying, it is impossible for it to have an edifying effect on the body for two reasons. One, no one knows what in the world the other person is saying. And two, if someone had the gift of interpretation, there's no way for them to distinguish which tongue they are supposed to interpret. So Paul says, don't do that. Two, or at most three, and in turn, and let someone interpret. He says in verse 28, if there is no one to interpret, let, them, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Now, a few years ago, we had a young family considering being a part of Living Hope, and they came from a Pentecostal background. As we met with this young couple over lunch, they had a few questions, and the wife asked me, if she could speak in tongues throughout our Sunday service? My answer, of course, was yes. Please do. If we're reading the same Bibles, we should expect that kind of practice. But then I went on to say, but like all gifts, I only ask that you submit them to the authority of God's word and use them according to his instruction. So I mentioned to her that unless we identified someone with the gift of interpretation, we would like for her to speak to herself and to God. And to my surprise, she recoiled at this instruction and insisted to me that she would sing out loud in tongues because she had no control over the impulse to speak in tongues. When it came upon her, she had no control over the impulse to speak in tongues. Now, friends, this... I think, is the same issue that Paul was directly addressing in the first century. In my estimation, the root cause of this mistake is based on the assumption outside of Scripture that regarding spiritual gifts, the Spirit takes over control of our minds and we are left without the capability to control our operation in the gifts. But this, friends is simply not biblical. Paul's detailed instructions indicate that the Christian does have power to control spiritual gifts and must control them according to God's word. If the Christian didn't have the power to control spiritual gifts, why in the world would he be giving us instruction to control them, to harness them, to restrain them? If it was something that overpowered us and we had a, sort of an out-of-body experience and we went into to autopilot, why would he be telling us how to function and how to operate? It's clear. His instructions are indicating, no, you actually do have power and you must operate in your gifts according to the revealed will of God's word. So, what will we do at Living Hope if someone has a tongue? Well, in seeking to obey Scripture, we must have someone who has the gift of interpretation before this gift has any public profitability. Now, how can we trust that person's interpretation? 
Well, like all spiritual gifts, it must be tested by the word and taken in faith. And additionally, at Living Hope, we practice something that we call fencing the mic. And by this, I mean any spontaneous or scheduled comments must be approved by the pastors before they can be be spoken publicly. In verse 29, Paul goes on and he gives similar instructions in regards to prophecy. And he says, let two or three prophets speak and let others weigh what is said. So instead of every member of the church sharing a public prophetic word, he says it's more valuable if there is a limit so that the service doesn't stall out. His view of, of the Sunday morning, morning service is not something that lasts till 3 o'clock in the afternoon or 5 o'clock in the afternoon or 7 o'clock in the evening. No, he's saying, no, let there be a limit to the amount of public prophecies that you allow to be shared on the Sunday morning for the purpose, again, for the edification of the church. The longer we stay here, the less edified we might be. Why? Because the less clear we are, right? Length of service does not mean more spirituality per se. Sometimes crystal clear clarity means more spirituality. I think that was Paul's point we made in chapter 14 verses 1 to 25. Paul's going for clarity of content. So put a limit on the amount of prophetic words that you allow to be shared publicly. It doesn't mean that Paul's going around policing all the private prophetic conversations that could be going on and prophetic encouragements that could be going on where every member is ministering to one another. But he's saying in terms of the public service, put a limit on it. Then he goes on to say, and let others weigh what is said. Now here's a question. Who are these others that Paul is talking about? Well, friends, this is a reference to the elders of the church, the pastors of the church. When I use the word elders, I don't mean the older guys. I mean the biblical term for the elders, which is pastor, bishop, older, overseer, elder. All are synonyms for the same office. The office of elder or pastor. So who are the others? They are the elders of the church. Now, while it is necessary for all Christians to practice discernment and should practice discernment when anything is shared, whether the gift of teaching, the gift of prophecy, the gift of encouragement, whatever that might be, discernment should be close in the Christian's mind. But pastors have a unique responsibility of teaching sound doctrine, Titus 2, and defending the church against false doctrine, Acts 20. So when, when he's saying, let others weigh what is said, he is indicating to the pastors at Corinth, pastors, your job is to listen to the prophetic word before you allow it to be shared publicly because what are we going for? Edification. And if it's something that's false doctrine, if it's something that's, that's wrong, that's not edifying. That's destructive. So let it be weighed before it's shared. 
publicly, that is. So therefore, our practice at Living Hope will be for someone who has a prophetic word to share it with a pastor prior to or during the service before anything is shared publicly. And since we're testing for clarity of message and fidelity to Scripture, we will encourage the person to write down the prophecy that they feel like the Lord has given them an impression of or a vision of or a dream of so that there is more clarity in communication to us in the moment to determine if it's something that is edifying to the body or perhaps if it's something that God has given for your own personal edification. And now once it passes this test, and if it passes this test, the person will be permitted to speak at the mic, which we have been waiting on this sermon series to buy so that we have an informed faith if and when God continues to stir that gift up in our church. And that person will be permitted to speak at the mic, which will be strategically located below the pulpit. Because while we do lean into prophecy as Paul commands us in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, we want to send the clear message as a church that our authority is God's word and God's word alone. In the sacred desk where the mic which holds the Bible the pulpit is where heralding God's word takes place and we don't want any other form any other we don't want any mistake to be made for someone to come up behind the sacred desk and share a prophetic word to send the impression that they are of equal authority we want it to be we want it to be felt that while we, we praise God for the gift of prophecy, we lean into it, we ask God to stir it up, it will be, it will be situated below so that just one more reminder, this is not a binding authority on the Christian's life. This is meant for our encouragement. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 14? Encouragement and consolation of building one another up. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Verse 3, 1 Corinthians 14. And then Paul tells us in verse 31 to prophesy one by one. I mean, he is giving us details, isn't he? So that all may learn and all may be encouraged. Paul forbids a few things in this section of scripture. He forbids many prophecies and he forbids disorder. Now why? Well, he goes on to tell us, like he always does. We have a question, just keep reading. A lot of times clarity will come if you continue to read scripture. Why? Why should we why should we limit the amount of prophecies and why, why is he forbidding disorder? Well, the reason is, is because God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. Scholar Gordon Fee says this, the God of ardor is the God of order. The God of passion is the God of order. 
So in other words, our Sunday gatherings, this is what Paul is implying, our Sunday gatherings are are designed, they are supposed to showcase what God is like. They're They're supposed to remind the believer and they're supposed to show the unbeliever what God is like. So if our services are dry and stuffy, it confirms our fleshly suspicions about God that he is a curmudgeon, which he is not. And if our services are absolute chaos, it communicates that God is chaotic and unpredictable, which he is not. God wants our services to reflect what he's like, orderly with a healthy sense of spontaneity. Orderly with a healthy sense of spontaneity. And that leads to our second point this morning, Unpopular inspiration. Now, in this first section, Paul was slamming the gavel and calling for order because the church was chaotic in their operation of tongues and prophecy. But in this last section, he's slamming the gavel and calling for order once again because the church was allowing women to test and judge prophecies. This, like many other situations in Corinth, is terribly grieving to Paul. So he calls them to make immediate changes in their corporate gathering. He says in verse 34, As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. So friends, what's the issue here? Why is Paul so adamant about this issue? Well, I believe that he is once again correcting their misconception that giftedness equals spirituality. Friends, many modern Christians have fallen into this terrible error as well. Listen, Paul is not minimizing women or belittling a woman's role in the church. No, he's instead trying to get the church to understand that true spirituality is biblical spirituality. And the Bible calls for men and women to play different roles in both the home and the church. And our, co- our cooperation within those God-ordained roles indicates true spirituality. The issue here is, is that some women had assumed the role and the responsibility of elders. We just indicated who are the others that are supposed to be weighing and testing prophecy. It is the elders of the local church. So the issue here is that some women had assumed the role and the responsibility of elders Because they were testing prophecies in tongues and providing permission to people to speak or not to speak. They were the ones judging. They were the ones weighing. They were the ones calculating. Now, how do we know that that's what Paul is referring to in this section? How do we know that he's not just making a blanket statement disallowing women to speak at all? In the corporate service. Well, 
for this reason. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5, this is what he says. Every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her, her head. Now, that's a whole other message. But in other words, this text in chapter 11, verse 5, is assuming that women are praying and they are prophesying in the corporate meeting but they were doing so under the authority of their husbands. Or in the case of Corinth, they were actually not doing it under the headship of their husbands. Or under the leadership of men. That's what I think is what he's trying to say is the church was misunderstanding the gospel. They're hearing the gospel. They've received the spirit. Men and women alike receive the spirit, right? Not men alone Men and women and even children who turn from their sin and trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sin receive the Spirit. We are sealed with the Spirit. Indistinguishable. All right? So the church in Corinth is experiencing regeneration, experiencing the filling of the Spirit, experiencing the manifestation of the Spirit in their life. Prophecy, tongues, encouragement, And now they're saying, when we read the Old Testament, the Spirit moved on men. But now in the New Testament, the Spirit is moving on men and women. And that must mean that the old ways of order, of God's design in the creation of man and woman, have been thrown out in the New Covenant. I'm taking off my head covering, which in the first century was a symbol of, of a woman's submission to her husband. Paul's point there, getting off track, but it's necessary. Paul's point there is not to force head coverings on every century following. His point is to say, first century, your symbol of authority under your husband is indicated by the culture, which is head coverings. And these ladies are saying, in Christ, we're free from that. We don't have to have head coverings. And Paul says, no, put your head covering back on. You don't understand the gospel. You don't, no, let me go a step further. You don't understand true spirituality. Genuine spirituality is biblical spirituality. It is not letting go of restraint. It is looking to God's word and looking to the will of God revealed in his word. So in this text, women are assuming the role and the function of Pastors in Corinth are testing, they're weighing the prophecies. Paul's not disallowing women speaking in the church in chapter 14 and allowing them to speak in church in chapter 11. His concern in our text is women functioning in the role of elder, which is clearly reserved for qualified men. As he says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. So, instead of women testing and approving prophecies, he says in verse 35, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home because it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. So in summary, Paul is not discouraging women prophesying throughout the corporate gathering. 
But instead, he is reminding the church that God's orderliness also includes his design of men and women. God is not a God of confusion, but a God of order. Yes, men and women are created equal in value and dignity and personhood, but men and women differ in roles and responsibilities. According to God's word, order matters to the Lord. Which leads to our third and final point for our entire series. Desire and do not despise. In this last section, Paul is bringing two chapters on spiritual gifts to a close. And he wants to ensure that we understand who's providing these instructions. He wants there to be no misunderstanding and mistake on who it is that's providing these instructions. They are not coming from an average Job, but they are coming from an apostle. So he says in verse 36, or was it from you that the word of God came? Oh, you think you're spiritual, Corinth. Was it to you that the word of God came? No. Or are you the only ones it has reached? No. It has sweeping the globe, or at least that portion of the globe during this time. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Now, Paul could not be any clearer, could he? His corrections and encouragement are not suggestions. They are a command of the Lord. He wants people to know that by rejecting his words, they are rejecting the spirit himself, whom they claim to be passionately following. Do you understand? That's what he's trying to get them to understand. Corinth, you claim to be a spiritual people, but if you disregard my word, you're actually disregarding the spirit that you claim to have such a claim on. He's he's, He's reminding them of just how immature they are in their faith. You're not nearly as mature as you think you are, Corinth. By rejecting my words, you are rejecting the Spirit himself. Friends, spirituality that is not Spirit-informed through the Spirit's inspired words is nothing at In other words, if it's not biblical spirituality, it's not spirituality at all. But Paul wants to conclude his address with a word of encouragement. And I want to include this address in this series with a word of encouragement to living hope. Listen, for the fourth and the final time, he repeats this phrase in verse 39. Earnestly desire... This isn't a one-off phrase that Paul uses. 
We didn't just name the series earnestly desire because it sounds good. This is a phrase that he repeats over and over and over and over again in these two chapters. So for the final time, he repeats this phrase in verse 39. Earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. So friends, in making a case for continuationism, which is the position of our church, meaning that we believe that all the gifts of the Spirit detailed in the New Testament are still available and given by the Spirit to the church for our edification and God's glory. In making a case for continuationism, it's helpful to ask this question of someone not yet convinced. Perhaps that is you today. Does Paul ever redact or revise this explicit command anywhere else in Scripture? Here he commands explicitly, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Does he ever redact it or ever revise that statement? Because if not, Why do we? How could we? Paul's heart is clear. Earnestly desire. His instructions are plain. Everything should be done decently and in order. So as we bring this series to a close, let's do so with some final thoughts. Christianity is not a religion of stuffy principles. But it is an invitation to know and experience the personal presence of God throughout our lives. Friends, God is alive and he is actively interacting throughout our lives through the person of the Holy Spirit. God wants us to know him. He wants us to desire him. And his activity in our lives, his his communication through our lives. And as we do, he wants us to obey him. Friends, I want us to hear God's invitation to our church this morning through his word. Do you desire to know and experience God's power and his presence throughout your life? Do you desire to know and experience God's power and his presence throughout your life? My answer is yes, Lord, I do. Please, more. I want to know more of you, Christ. I want to know more of your suffering. I want to know more of your power. I want to see your power on display. What about you? Each of you. Do you want that? When you read the New Testament, do you say, yes, that's the kind of Christianity I want to live? Not a dry and stuffy one, not a chaotic one, but one that's full of order and power and proclamation and salvation and gifts on display and healings. 
That's the kind of Christianity I want to see in my life. That's the kind of Christianity I want my kids to grow up seeing in their lives. That they always know God is huge. He's huge and he answers prayer and he does remarkable, miraculous things. We get in binds and we ask him for stuff because he's alive and he's active and he does them. And that we get our most excitement in life not by going on vacations or taking breaks from work, but by knowing and experiencing God. Every day that we know him, we encounter him, we experience him, that our faith is alive. And that it's active and that it's interactive and that we engage the Sunday morning meeting with our children. That we teach our children, let's pray before we go to church so that if God has something that he wants to use us to do to encourage another believer, that he would do that. And so that our children are always, their feet are always on the blocks, ready and willing to bless other saints in the church. Ready to, and they know that God is real, that he loves to perform powerfully. Obvious, that's what I want. But I really want to know, I want you to ask yourself, do you want that? So in addition to asking yourself that question, I also want to encourage you to ask God, by faith, through prayer, to stir up the spiritual gifts that he has given you, that you might serve his people for his glory. Amen. Friends, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we close. Lord, we love you. We love you. We love you. And we love your word. God, it has been remarkable to study about the person of the Holy Spirit and your heart, Lord, for him, for the Spirit to work powerfully in our lives and in our church. So, Lord, would you do that for us? We've studied a lot. Our minds are filled Our minds are filled with information. God, would you please cause that information to trickle down into our hearts, to affect us and change us. And if we don't have desire, if we don't have desire to know you, to experience you, to behold you, to watch you, to ask of you, to to think big, to risk big, God, please give us the gift of faith. Change our hearts. Thank you for all that you've already done in our church. Please don't stop. Please continue to do far more abundantly than anything we could ask or think. For your glory, Lord, and for our happiness in Christ. Amen.